One of my favorite people to discuss trend following with is Catherine Kaminsky, because she has a great way of simplifying and explaining some of the key concepts in the strategy. In today's short episode, we talk about the phrase crisis alpha and how it may be better to think about these strategies as divergent strategies, because in reality, we don't really need a crisis in order for trend following to do well. Years like 2014 and 2017 are great examples of this and perhaps even Q1 of 2019 as a more recent example. We also touch on convergent strategies, which in my mind to a large extent are short volatility strategies, even if not all investors realize this. I think events from 2018 gave us a taste of what is to come when volatility starts to re-emerge in the markets. Now it's time for you to sit back and relax and enjoy these unique takeaways from my conversation with Catherine. And if you would like to listen to the full conversation, and I hope you do, just go over to toptradersonplug.com forward slash 41 and also forward slash 42. I had a question the other day from uh, someone here based in Switzerland. Roman, in fact, and he asked about people's perception about trend following that perhaps it's performed poorly in the last couple of years because there's been too much money chasing trend following after the great year of 2008. When you hear something like that, what comes to mind? Well, I actually just just wrote an article which is coming out for Eurex on on this exact topic, and I call it uh, return of the trend, it's all about correlation. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'll just give you sort of a, a view on this. And, sure. And I, if you look at a trend following system, any portfolio system in general, we basically, de- we depend on correlation. Mm-hmm. We depend on the diversification across markets. Mm. And regardless of looking at the capacity in the industry, even not even thinking about that, if you mm. take a graph of correlations pre in the last 20 years, it, it almost looks like a step function. Right. So up into 2008, the correlations were pretty low across all futures markets, mm-hmm. and they just shot through the roof in 2008, mm-hmm. and they stayed there until earlier this year okay, or until late 2013. And if you think about portfolio construction... The returns of trend falling is driven by divergence. Mm-hmm. And we've had some divergence sure. over this period of time. I mean, quantitative easing, all sorts of you know events like the, the um, sort of nuclear meltdown in, in Japan, those are divergent events. Mm. But in this sharp ratio is also the diversification and the risk. And when you construct a portfolio, it's not only the volatility, which has been low, but also the correlation across assets that allows you to have proper diversification. Right. And correlation being high means diversification is low. Sure. Which means that even though there may be some trends, there's a lot of risk because right. it's sort of like a one trade world. Okay. And if you look at that, that sort of coincides with a period that's been difficult for trend following strategies. Sure. So they do have profits in some areas, but there was just not enough diversification across their portfolio to, I think, to support their performance as consistent with history. 
the next area I want to talk about is what usually is the trading program. But today in our conversation, it'll be about the trading strategy or the model, however you phrase it, that you've used in your study that really represents the performance over this long period. Tell me about how you and Alex uh, constructed this and feel free to go in as much detail as, as, as you want. Okay, yeah, this is a, a very important and good question, Niels. And one of the chapters of our book that I'm the most excited about <laughs> is actually chapter three. Right. Um, and this is one called Systematic Trend Falling Basics. Okay. And I found that when I looked at most other books on trend following and most sort of descriptions, it's very hard to find a specific formula that you could use as this is the formula okay. uh, for trend following. So what we did instead is we tried to create a framework with mm. one formula. Okay. And this one formula, obviously, as I said, with science and art, can be adapted and, and made much more complex mm. um, by any particular manager. But we actually use this formula to build a framework for style analysis okay. later in the book. Sure. So we start off by kind of asking, what are the four key questions of trend following? Mm -hmm. Well, we need to determine when to enter, mm -hmm. how large of a position to take on, sure. how to get out of a position, sure. and how much risk to allocate to any particular position. Yeah. We then go on to sort of define the five key building blocks of a trend following system, and these include data processing, mm -hmm. Which is pretty straightforward. Sure. Signal generation, position sizing, market allocation, and execution. Okay. But the, in this process, the most important part that we focus on is position sizing. Okay. So we focus on creating one formula for position sizing, which is a function of several key variables. Okay. So this function is that. The position, the nominal position amount is a sizing function, which tells you the size. And we leave that very open in the book. Okay. Because that is a lot of art right, right. there. Um, right. <laughs> so the size of the position is a sizing function times the risk loading. This allows you to gauge leverage up and down mm -hmm. um, times the capital allocated to that particular market divided by the total adjusted dollar risk times the dollar risk of a position. Right. Okay. So basically all your, let me do it in layman terms. Sure. <laughs> like I'll do it as if I was telling it to my, my husband. <laughs> so what you do is you say, okay, the sizing function tells you how strong your, your sort of um, strength, your, your, your sort of conviction is. Sure. So if, you're, if your models, like your moving average models, say that this is a very strong trend, then sure. your sizing function weights based on the, those those rules. Sure. The risk loading is just a simple loading loading of risk across markets, which allows you to lever the position up and down. Mm -hmm. So if you want to have more sort of a larger exposure, then you can expand every position at the same level. Mm -hmm. The capital allocated that's simple. It's just the dollar amount that you put into the position. Sure. You're going to multiply that by the the dollar risk of that one contract. Yep. And then because not all futures contracts are created equal, some are more volatile than others, yep. we need to divide it by the total total dollar risk 
of the of the position, and this allows you to um, allows you to sort of adjust. If you have something like lean hogs compared to oil, you're going to adjust the one that's more volatile down because you need to put less capital in it to expose yourself to the same amount of risk as sure. the other contract. Sure. Now you mentioned signal generation. Mm-hmm. I guess there are four, two main forms of signal generation, I guess, in trend following. One that uses moving averages, the one that uses price breakout channels. Um, what did you use in your study and, and, and why? So we actually left that open as part of the sizing function. Mm-hmm. And then later in the book, we will apply that to the sizing function. So if we do an example, we'll say that this is a moving average system, mm-hmm. which means that the moving averages were used to create the, the sizing function. So, And we also explain that it's obviously not going to be perhaps one moving average, but it could be a basket of moving averages where you take the sort of average over a range. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where art comes in here. <laughs> right. So, you know, this the sizing function is the science, but the application of that is you know, depends on how sophisticated you get in terms of creating that function. Mm. I think you also mentioned something about, I mean, I think a lot of people are focused on where did you buy something? And if you talk to people in general and they talk about their investments, they would always say, oh, I've just bought IBM. I've just bought Facebook stocks. But you rarely hear them say, I've just sold Facebook or I've just sold IBM. But you actually put a lot of emphasis, I think, on the exit of a trade relative to the entry point. Talk to me a little bit about that and why this is important for investors to be aware of. So, I mean, if you think about uh, a lot of people think that predictability is coming into play when mm. you're talking about using a trend following strategy. And if you're following a trend, you're not necessarily starting it. So I think the point of a of a trend following strategy is there's both the entry and there's the exit. Yeah. And we explicitly explain that these decisions are different. And actually the exit is a very important part of the whole process. Sure. And what we do to do this analysis, and this is kind of an exciting part of the book too, is that in chapter in chapter five, after we explain this concept of divergence and divergent risk-taking and the importance of cutting your losses, we look at trading systems that have agnostic entry rules. Right. And what I mean is, is that imagine that instead of actually using sort of the sort of any sort of indicator to get in, you randomly flip a coin mm-hmm. to which market to get into. Yeah. And it turns out when you look at that system, there's still performance that comes from getting out right. of the position. So that tells you something about the driving of sort of the getting out, the exit decision and trembling and how important it is. And you see that that, t- that varies over time. And then we also look at the entry and try and determine, okay, is there some predictability? Mm-hmm. So we look at a concept called trend leakage. Right. The idea is how often is a trend falling systems position positively correlated with the future trend position. Mm-hmm. And we see that trend leakage actually does exist, and it's also time varying. Okay. So for some periods of time, it's actually, some of these trends seem to leak out some into, into market prices. Mm-hmm. But there's also plenty of times where there's 
no, or trend leakage is, is actually rather weak. Mm-hmm. So what that tells us is that in some scenarios, you may actually have some trends leaking out if you use a systematic approach. Right. But there's other times where it's actually, and a lot of times, where it's really the sort of getting out of the positions and sort of getting out of the positions when the trends are disappearing as well mm. that, that drive a lot of performance. Right. And I think that's the key to understand those few words you said at the end, that exits to a large extent can be the driver of the performance. Environment, we talked about it already a little bit about, you know, when these things doesn't work and when they work. But I want to talk about environment in a different context because investors and particularly institutional investors, they often talk about inflationary versus deflationary environments and how is this all going to shape up. And I noticed in the few pages that I did uh, see from your book that you actually have a, a chart of annual inflation rate in the US and the UK. Uh, I think it goes back to the 1700s, actually. And then you show the performance of a trend-following system in these different periods. Talk to me a little bit about these kind of environments and and how that is framed in your and Alex's mind when it comes to trend-following. Well, I mean, I guess this goes back again to the same philosophy of, of trend-following. Trend-following is long divergence. So if inflation causes divergence... Great for the strategy. Sure. Maybe not great for everybody, but um, <laughs> it's really sort of about understanding that if inflation will drive divergence in prices, then it should work. I don't sort of have a sort of polar view on low inflation, high inflation sure. is good. I just think that this is a type of strategy that's meant to adapt to sort of spectacular moves. So if we see that over time, as a result of the inflation, then inflationary environments of different types will be interesting for us. The same is true for interest rates. Yeah. And I get that question a lot. Sure. <laughs> so so, so yeah. if I understand you correctly, Katie, what you're saying is it doesn't really matter whether we have deflation or inflation. And obviously for the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, we've pretty much had inflationary environments of some degree. But recently it very much looked like deflation could be back on the table. And, but what you're saying is it doesn't really matter. As long as it creates divergence, it's okay for trend followers. And when you look at the statistics from 1720 to about 2013, right. which is a roughly 300 year period, mm-hmm. we see that the average return during a low inflation to deflationary environment is about 10.4 percent okay the five to ten percent inflation is about 10.1 mm-hmm. and for high inflation it's actually about 15 percent right so what I would say is that extreme moves sure. just as as usual um, extreme environments are tend to have divergence and yeah. less opportunities so from history it doesn't look like there's less or more momentum in a sort of low inflation versus moderate. But mm. it seems to be that high inflation, really high and possibly extremely low <laughs> um, or extremely um, extreme periods of deflation may actually cause things to be interesting for someone who's divergent. Sure, absolutely.
Katie, the next thing I want to talk about is risk management. And based on everything you've done and the way you look at these things, I wanted to find out how you define risk and what is the important risk to look at when you look at these strategies? Yes, and um, this is a very important question because in my opinion, I think risk management is the greatest asset of the CTA industry. Um, and what I mean by that is that risk management and sort of being sophisticated at that is the, the value added that a manager has over someone sort of hiring two guys and saying, okay, build this trend following system, read Katie's book, read you know, this book, implement this. Because having a sophisticated understanding and very good risk system and an allocation of understanding of how to allocate risks over time is one of the best, uh, one of the greatest attributes of professional management. And let me give you an example of this, which I think we go over with in, in chapter five of our book. Sure. Um, so the example works the following way. Imagine that you sort of one year from now had perfect knowledge of the price of one particular market. Mm. So you know that oil is going to trade at X sure. in, in one year. Now, that seems like really valuable information. <laughs> but if you just take that position and hold it over time, the risk of that position could be huge. Yeah. Because markets could go up or down or up or down over time. And you may actually get completely wiped out yeah. um, based on just the price movements. So what we do is we sort of add risk management to that trade and sort of start managing risk. And what you see is that as you manage risk over time, so maybe half of it is sort of using the forecast and half is not using the forecast, mm -hmm. that the sharp ratio of such a approach actually improves dramatically over mm -hmm. time. Um, and drawdowns also improve. Sure. So risk management is sort of the way that is the, the major value added of any trend-following system. And it's the, the art that a manager adds to sort of any sort of simple product or mm -hmm. sort of adding two guys on a team and telling them to, hey, code this. Sure. You know, the systems are not, you know, in theory, not complicated, but in practice, having a, a very sophisticated approach to risk and understanding how to dynamically adjust it properly is where you can really add value. Sure. But... Risk can come out in many different ways, meaning people can look at standard deviation, value at risk, margin to equity, um, risk to stops, whatever it might be. Is there something that, from your point of view, would give you more comfort uh, knowing or looking at um, when you're look at, looking at a strategy or a manager? Well, understanding how they change their risk. I mean, so how do they allocate risk? Mm. And sort of having a good idea of what causes them to allocate more or less risk to a particular position mm. is very important. Because if you, I mean, I think the real dangers is those when you have sort of, say, dynamic leveraging or when you have sort of positions growing at risk and, and, and accelerating. Sure. That's what we're trying to avoid. Um, so understanding if risk allocation is actually conditional or okay. not. And we, we actually touch on this in, in the book as well, when we talk about drawdowns and we also talk about um, leveraging over time. And we discuss sort of 
how you can look at leverage interday or day to day and sort of determine if leverage is a function of past PL or not mm. can tell you something about how the, the manager takes his or her positions. Sure. You also mentioned, I think, something called hidden and unhidden risk. What what do you mean by that? Oh yes, that's one of my favorite topics. Actually. Okay. So, you know, I, I I like this topic from going back to I wrote a paper for the CME about this and it was about I think it was about 2011 or something. And I was thinking about this a lot is that trend-building strategies or future strategies in general contain much less of these hidden risks. Right. So what are unhidden and hidden risks? Right. Well, I say in, in our book, we say that, um, you know, unhidden risks are risks that come up in price. Okay. So price risk. Sure. Hidden risks are risks that come up not in price. So they def- they inflate sharp ratios. Mm-hmm. So liquidity risk is a hidden risk right. because it doesn't show up until it shows up. Sure. And it's very hard to measure prior yeah. to it arriving. Uh, credit risk is also hidden. Sure. It's very hard to estimate credit quality. Um, so it will come up sort of in, sh- in shocks and sort of out of the blue and the numbers will not, no matter how hard you try and estimate default probabilities and things like that, there, there are always very few observations, which means that it's very, very hard to actually calibrate properly and risk adjust for credit risk. Sure. Um, another important one is leverage. Uh, leverage can be very transparent, but there also are ways to sort of embed risk in leverage. And we go through that in detail and say, you know, leverage should be very transparent, but there are actually methodologies like uh, using dynamic leveraging where you can increase risk by creating some cyclicality in uh, in your leverage application that won't show up on a slower frequency. Mm. So what I mean is is that if you're losing, you double your bets. Yeah. And most trend-following systems don't do that. <laughs> sure. But some do. I mean, if, yeah. you, if you do the right analysis, you can see that. And it makes sense because it sort of creates some cyclicality in 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 the the application of leverage over time, which is fine as long as it doesn't catch you in the wrong direction, um, in the wrong moment. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's actually quite topical. I mean, you and I we're talking at the end of October two thousand and fourteen, and from what I hear, certain strategies out there in October has had a very rough time. And I'm thinking here about option strategy, which again, managed futures, which is a word that is being thrown around a lot, covers many different strategies, not just trend following. And part of that universe is, you know, option strategies, talking about divergent and convergent strategies. It's a good example. So it's just interesting about that particular area, because clearly um, there are risks there in those kind of strategies that investors may not be aware of. And um, we'll see how the month ends, but uh, it looks like it's going to be one of those months where some of these hidden risks have have uh, come out. Well, Niels, if I give a little comment on that, sure. um, just to kind of bring this back to like derivatives 101 or something yeah. like that. Kind of, um, if you look at an option strategy, mm-hmm. it, it applies dynamic leveraging. Yeah. So let's say that you want to invest in a call option. The delta of the call option increases 
as a function of PL. Sure. So that means that in some sense you build your positions and the leverage increases. Yeah. With the with an option strategy. And so what that shows is that a month like this, where maybe leverage might have hurt you, uh, an option strategy would suffer. Yeah. But a trend following strategy that doesn't do that won't. Sure. Absolutely. Great example. Thank you. And a manager that does that in their strategy <laughs> will probably have a harder time than a trend follower that doesn't use um, any le- dynamic leveraging. Yeah, true. And speaking of drawdowns, which is typically the next thing I talk to people about, in your opinion, from a sort of 30,000 feet view, have you come up with any measure that could explain or give kind of a framework for investors in terms of what kind of drawdowns should they expect from a trend follower without the red lights going completely, uh, you know, uh, berserk? What I would say is that if you if you look at trend followers, they have a lot more drawdowns over time mm-hmm. than equity, right? But they're way shorter. Okay. So if you look at sort of a history of sort of drawdown picture, and we do this in the beginning of our book of an equity strategy, long equity versus trend following, you'll see that there's a lot of small drawdowns and they're very often. Mm-hmm. Um, this is because most of the time, I say that you know a lot of times, you're if you go back to the same analogy of venture capital versus private equity, right? right? Two thirds of the time, or maybe over 50% of the time, there may not be any opportunities. Mm. But when there's opportunities, you gain way more than you've lost. Right. So... As a result, you're going to have to expect that a strategy like trend following that has lots of price risk and mm-hmm. no other hidden risk. Sure. Because hidden risk, what do they do? They create huge drawdowns. Yeah. And they happen rarely. Yeah. But this type of strategy is very systematic, only has exposure to price risk, mm-hmm. and thus has lots of small drawdowns over time, which are compensated by larger returns. You say that, and... I accept it, of course, coming from that world. But on the other hand, looking at the last few years, what we did see was that many managers, including those who have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, saw, in most cases, much bigger drawdowns that they have seen before and longer drawdowns. And I know that it's very dangerous to start calling for the death of trend following and, you know, this time it's different is some really dangerous words to use. But how do you, having done all this research and studying, how do you frame the last few years uh, for CTAs and trend followers and the performance and the expanded drawdowns and prolonged drawdowns? How do you frame that in, in the overall picture? Is it just because we feel it's a little bit different because we're looking at the last 20 years that we remember or was it a bit different this time? Well, I think it's perfect you asked that because um, a an academic uh, from, I think he's from Edinburgh, there's a new paper out that he's by, I think it's Hutchison and O'Brien. Okay. And this particular paper is called, Is This Time Different? Right. Uh, for CTAs. And okay. um, I, I think it's a very good paper to go and look at because here's what they say. So they look at many different past uh, crisis periods for trend falling Mm -hmm. and CTAs. And they show that the performance of trend falling tends to be somewhat depressed post a crisis. Right. 
And this happens to be the case for every single crisis that they looked at. And it got me thinking a little bit, uh, listening to them talk about it, in that in some sense, there's, you know, we spend a lot of time here talking about debt overhang and sort of like the, the difficult period post a crisis of recovery. It's sort of like a recessionary period. And it seems that, you know, after the profits are made from the divergence mm-hmm. in a crisis, right. there's a period where markets have to restabilize people have to sort of, the, the market ecology sort of has to readjust. Okay. And I would say that, you know, it just happens to be that this particular period, uh, the crisis was so bad. Mm-hmm. And, and we see that when we look at what's happening in financial, you know, politics, mm-hmm. that it's still sort of sorting itself out. And I'm sure you might actually find some similar results if you looked at the Great Depression, which also took a lot of time to recover. Sure. Um, So it's quite possible that, you know, this sort of delays and sort of reestablishing what is the, you know, what is the new paradigm Mm. in financial markets? You know, how long will will we be sitting with, you know, still trying to deal with EMER and still trying to sort of figure all these things out? It's not surprising to me that that, that's the case. But honestly, with correlations coming down and with a lot of these issues starting to get sorted out in financial markets and in the financial industry as a whole, we're seeing again that the strategy seems to be bouncing back. So that's why, for example, I wrote Return <laughs> of the Trend. Sure. Because I think that you know momentum, just like value, just like other sort of risk premia, are time bearing. Yeah. So hopefully we're back in that time again. Sure. Now, in terms of drawdowns, you need to help me here because drawdowns for a manager, of course, clearly um, create some emotional roller coaster. We know that. Um, and we learn to deal with them over time. But I think one of the biggest challenges for us really are to get investors comfortable and help them through the emotional roller coaster because what often happens is they tend to redeem or reduce their investment at the worst possible time. They almost become trend followers on trend followers, meaning that they buy high and sell low, which is uh, not a good strategy. So how do we how do we educate them a bit and how do we um, explain that a drawdown is not quite the same as a drawdown in an equity market where there's kind of an open end of risk, it could go to zero, like we have seen with some stocks. How do we explain that, do you think, in in a language that would make them comfortable about being in a drawdown and maybe even see it as a buying opportunity? So we actually, this is a really important question, and it's actually one of the chapters of, of our book as well. It's called Dynamic Allocation to Trend Pulling. Right. And what we sort—I what's interesting about this is that if you if you take the concept of that risk premia are sort of time bearing, right, and there's some cyclicality, you should actually buy low and sell high. Sure. And investors tend to do the opposite. Yeah. Um, they they buy high and sell low, um, and this is because I mean, if they sort of understand the sort of. If, if we can explain better the divergent convergent type of concept, if you have a a strategy like trend following that over time, they actually tend to be mean reverting. Sure. Um, the strategy over a long run is is somewhat mean reverting. 
So momentum actually goes in waves. Sure. So if that's the case, then you need to sort of try and make sure that you actually buy in a mean reversion sense. Mm-hmm. So you, you shouldn't trend follow trend following. Right. You should actually do the opposite. Yeah. Um, as an investor, you should buy low and sell high. So when I talk to certain investors who maybe are very familiar with this, what I, what I see now is that in the last couple of months, some of them have started to say, well, you know, equity markets are at all time highs historically sure. in relative terms. That makes me concerned. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to readjust and start thinking about adding more CTAs. And those that did that sure. really profited. So, sure. you know, those who were able to lock in some of their profits on the equity market and start thinking about alternatives really, really did well. Yeah. Um, and the intuition was pretty clear. You know, equity markets are at really major spectacular wins. What's the chances it's going to go that much higher? <laughs> So, you know, those who I've talked to that did that, they, they really sort of profited from that. Sure, sure. That's it for now. And remember, if you want to listen to the full conversation with Catherine and me, please go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash 41 and forward slash 42. Now, if you enjoyed this short, insightful clip from a past episode of the show, then you will love the free book I'm giving away right now. It's called The Many Flavors of Trend Following. And it includes some of my best insights on this perhaps the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. And you can get your free copy right now by going to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book to start your own journey today. And if you want more from Catherine and me, then of course you can just go to the website toptradersonplug.com and there you'll see a little ad for a book we wrote together And if you pay the small amount of $7, uh, you can get a copy of the book called How to Master Manage Futures, even if you have never traded before. And I hope you get a copy of both, of course. Before you go, please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel, where I'll be back next week with more exciting and engaging conversations. Until next time, take care.